Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In this talk, I want to look at the work of Julian James, and then I'll compare James a bit with Jacques Lacan and Slavoj Zizek, and claim that the theories, in fact, overlap and point to the same conclusions. But in this understanding, tying it into then also a biblical understanding of how one breaks through what Julian Jaynes is describing. Jaynes will actually describe a change in human subjectivity that goes beyond what Lacan or Zizek would allow for in the rise of consciousness, which in a sense breaks through their understanding of the real. But Julian Jaynes was a researcher on human psychology on the brain and spent most of his life then researching consciousness and how consciousness arose. And his idea is that the brain actually goes through a shift from what he calls a bicameral mind, uh, the idea that the brain is in some way uh, split between the linguistic side of the brain and the reception of that language and the right side of the brain. And so he only writes one book, but he speaks widely, and his book then is just covers sort of every area. He always felt uh, dissatisfied that uh, people didn't understand the nature of what he was describing in the rise of consciousness. That is, that there is a difference between cognition, the ability to see and perceive, and consciousness or self-consciousness. And his idea is that self-consciousness arises slowly. He would connect it to the brain itself, that there's an actual shift, that the bicameral mind or the, the brain split between the two hemispheres gradually is overcome. Now, I don't know how you prove this or, or how you would disprove it. It's such a huge theory. But, of course, the interesting thing about it is that it certainly has a lot of evidence that could be taken. It could be taken for any number of things, but he appeals to a lot of historical evidence to support his notion, first of all, that there was this clear bicameral mind, and in the bicameral mind, the linguistic side is taken to be a voice that is an objective voice, and of course the origin of this voice, uh, the law, the authorities of the culture, it's not an individualistic voice, but it would be the authority of the dead especially. So he uses a lot of research going back and tracing how death itself then, or the grave, which is made to speak. So the, the idea that the, the dead are still living is a common theme in his work. And of course, in, in all of this, there's a, an interesting corollary with what is depicted in Scripture in the confrontation with death or the undoing of the reification of death. And so in James, uh, there is the notion that it's not simply that death is reified, but the brain literally 
is made to hear the voice of the dead or imagines that it hears the voice of the dead. This fits with Lacanian theory, of course, in the idea that language itself is reified and that the nothingness or the real, death itself uh, in the real, is the generating factor in this. The picture that James gets from archaeology and history is that the burial of the important dead in ancient cultures, you know, the Egyptian pharaohs preserved their bodies mummified in their pyramids, or the kings of Ur entombed with their entire retinues buried, sometimes buried alive for continued service, so that in some way death was not a, a clear departure, but the idea it's just a continuation and that they would be provided with food and drink and yoked animals. And so it points to a culture that certainly is static, and this is what James is picturing, that you never escape the voice of the dead, that the authority figures, even when they're dead, will continue to speak. And so, you know, there are many tombs that have been found with their vaulted subterranean rooms containing food, drink, clothing, jewelry, weapons, even the whole ornate yoked chariots. In Japan, I know that even the ordinary dead are referred to as kami, that is that death and deification are connected. And that's true in many cultures, that the, the dead are not only treated as if they're still living, but then they take on an authority. So the very oldest inscriptions in funerary themes of, in Mesopotamia, it will list months of rations that they'll give the dead bread and beer to be allotted. In 2500 BC, James talks about in Lagesh, in Mesopotamia, a dead person was buried with seven jars of beer 420 flat loaves of bread, two measures of grain, one garment, one head support, and one bed. There are some ancient graves not only have the various needs of life, but then you'll find they have actual feeding tubes that they would pour broth down into the mouth of a corpse. In uh, He mentions in New York there's a bowl, a mixing bowl, with an image on it from 850 BC, it shows a boy tearing his hair with one hand, kind of uh, hearing a voice maybe, and with the other he stuffs food into the mouth of a corpse that they take to be his mother. And so the idea is that the feeder was hallucinating the voice uh, from the dead and trying to feed the dead. In Mesoamerica, in Olmec funerals, from about 800 to 300 BC, there were richly furnished pots of food. In the Mayan kingdoms also, the noble dead were buried as if the plazas in which they were entombed were set up as if they were actually living plazas. The chieftain's tomb just recently found. It was an ornate tomb, but actually the one chieftain was buried in a sitting position and a child and a dog, apparently killed or buried alive, were with him for company. Even in 
ordinary burials across the world. Men were buried or people were buried with their mouths full of grain maize or uh, they were buried with their tools and weapons with pots filled with drink and food. The undead and the authority they represented continued to speak through hallucinated voices, you know, through the gods, through idols. Originally, he's saying that before the breakdown of the bicameral mind, you don't really need an idol or uh, any kind of medium because everybody had the voice in their head. And then as you see it break down, fewer and fewer people are able to actually hear the voice of the dead. And so special mediums and oracles, mystics are able to intone the voice of the dead. And of course, he'll call upon modern psychiatry and especially schizophrenia is a, maybe a carryover from this time in which people heard voices in their head as if they were objective voices. The idea is that the dead in many cultures, Assyria, Mesoamerica, even in Japan today, I know they're mountain mystics, they intone the, the voice of those who have died, embody them maybe. Hesiod speaks of a golden race of men who became the holy demons, and of course a demon here could just be a deity upon the earth, and they cured people of their ills, they were the guardians of mortal men, and they were considered immortal. It's an interesting idea, of course, once you're dead, you no longer are subject to dying. It's actually a very Lacanian or Zizakian notion that occupying the place of the dead is to occupy a kind of absolute. And of course that's the picture in history, is that death speaks quite literally that it has the authority in the breakdown of the bicameral mind. It may be that we've undergone a shift in human subjectivity, but of course in Hegel we'll still get the notion of nothingness and death as a kind of absolute. He mentions even Plato refers to heroes who after death become the demons, and of course demons here, the spirits, or even the gods, that tell people what to do. And Socrates mentions that in his own time that God-possessed men speak much truth but know nothing of what they say. That is, that they apparently go into some sort of trance, intone the voice of the dead but they themselves are not conscious of having given voice to the dead. And so Jaynes is tracing throughout, first of all, the pure bicameral period in which the brain was split and people heard the voice of authority in their own brain, every individual, and then you can... He, he's a little unclear, you know, and, and would say that it's an unclear thing as to when the shift occurs, but he's calling upon periods in which then people began to talk about the possessed or idols or oracles or mediums, that is, that they're special individuals or places or means that give voice to the gods that in some way for most people or many people had grown silent. And so in the cuneiform literature, he refers to god statues speaking, even in the Old Testament, that the king of Babylon consults a teraph, an idol, that speaks, chapter 21 of Ezekiel, for the king of Babylon 
will stop at the fork in the road at the junction of the two roads to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult with idols. He will examine the liver. Aztec history also began according to reports of the Spanish conquistadors when a statue from a ruined temple belonging to a previous culture spoke to their leaders and commanded them to set out on a journey across the lakes, little ambiguous as to what body of water this might be. But James compares it to Moses zigzagging across the desert and bringing them to a new land. They were following their own Moses. In Peru, the conquering Spaniards presumed the voice of the devil was controlling the Peruvians, and they report back that in the temple of Paracamac was a devil who used to speak to the Indians in a very dark room, which was as dirty as he himself. Now, my point here is whether or not James is correct in his description of brain development, there's no question that the world has gone through a shift in notions of subjectivity and personhood, that where these old voices of authority were once universal and the dead were reckoned with as a kind of absolute unchanging authority, that begins to break down. And of course, in the modern period in the West, the complete breakdown of the notion of that sort of authority. The interesting overlap, of course, is that if we think in the Bible of the authority of the law, and James uh, refers to the scripture, he himself was the son of a Unitarian minister, He and James, in fact, spent three years in prison as a conscientious objector during the war. And so he often references scripture as a kind of appeal that there, too, you can see that not only the idols, but, of course, his notion is that Moses is hearing a voice like these old voices that are objectified voices of God. Now, whether you agree with that, certainly there is the understanding in Paul that the authority of the law that was once unquestioned and absolute, that is, that that's, that's really what's happening in the New Testament, is that there's a shift in subjectivity in which the law is no longer simply the absolute authority. And, of course, we could break down uh, human history in Paul's categories. There is an unquestioning period of the symbolic order in Lacanian terms is taken as absolute, and then the shift to the ego or the I you know, thinking of Romans 7, that there is a, a turn to the individual and a questioning of the law. Certainly, by the time we get to the modern period, there is an, uh, the understanding of questioning, you know, of all religious authority, church authority. And at the same time, we'll see people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau saying, well, can't we go back and regain the paradise of nature? You know, the point in Jane's point is that modern scientism, the notion that science speaks in the place of God, is simply a replacement of one authority for another. He traces science as an attempt to or resurrect some absolute law or voice of God. You know, with Pythagoras in Greece, is seeking the lost, quote, invariance of life 
in a theology of divine numbers and their relationship, which begins the science of mathematics. And then Galileo, two millennia later, talks about mathematics as the speech of God, or Pascal and Leibniz echo him, saying they hear God in the awesome rectitudes of mathematics. While we might agree that mathematics is reflective of God's ordering power, what James is saying is that they're literally an attempt to create an authority on the order of that old authority in the voice of a, a kind of reified voice. And certainly that fits with the Lacanian picture of human subjectivity, that the subject itself arises then through this reified notion of language. And maybe mathematics and science will once more become a kind of divine certainty. And of course the idea is this world-building strategy of humans is made clear in the modern period. You know, this is Rene Descartes on that cold day when he was a soldier and he seeks warmth in a room in which they're baking. And he looks at the room and says, I can doubt that this room exists. Maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe a demon is deceiving me. But one thing I cannot doubt is that I am thinking. And if I'm thinking, I exist. Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And so Descartes is actually, we see, resurrecting, in a sense, this voice of absolute certainty. The thought that he would reify is the thought that he imagines gives him existence. Well, that's not so greatly different other than it, in its individualized form. And, of course, the idea in Jane's picture is the brain is no longer functioning the way it did. Now, whether we agree that this is a physical hardwired apparatus, I think we can all agree that there has been a shift throughout history in human subjectivity. Maybe the modern period is clearly a sign whether the shift actually takes place there. There is the recognition that comes with Kant, who says, well, with the Cartesian cogito, there is no necessary or traceable connection between thought and the thing or person doing the thinking. His idea is that the thinking thing and the thought are removed from one another. And so there is this questioning of the law, if you want to put it in those terms. But actually in Lacanian understanding or Hegelian understanding, there is a questioning of human subjectivity. And so this is what gives rise to German idealism, to the shifts that we call postmodernism. And what is clear in this story is that the human subject has been changed up and that the gap between the Cartesian thought and the thing that thinks has become a kind of chasm. But maybe it was from that chasm that there has always been a kind of reified voice, the self-positing nature of the human subject. But now, where that was once hidden, that self-positing nature of the human subject is laid bare. I mean, to state it prosaically, oh, people are just making this stuff up. In a sense, yeah, that there is the sense that they need 
a horizon of meaning, and they create that horizon in language per se. And so the god of the law, the god of the philosophers, is that any different, or in fact the god of Christendom, who is no longer really with us. You know, Nietzsche's pronouncement of the death of God, I think is a depiction of another shift in human subjectivity, that there is a loss. Now, this loss, I do not think, touches upon what was to be the truth of Christianity, but maybe this truth is continuing to unfold for us, that we're continuing to realize the sense in which we are reborn or the human subject is reconstituted in Christ. Maybe that is a reality that continues to impact all of history. And so the city of man, in some way, is proving inadequate on a culture-wide basis. That it's really Christ who calls us out of the city, that it's Christ who you know, is sacrificed outside the city gates. But in this, I think we're hitting upon what is actually a theme of Scripture, that there is always the sense that we meet God when our world begins to fall apart, and specifically when we face the reality of death. That is, we don't use death as salvific, but in fact we see death as a kind of threat, and, and that's really what the difference is. I think that instinctively that the fear of death that is being covered over in the reification or authorizing of death is a covering over then of this last enemy. And in Psalms 107 as a prime example, it just goes through case after case where there is a confrontation with the reality of death and one is undone by that reality. You kind of face the abyss of darkness and it's in facing that darkness that you come to God, that this is the whole picture of redemption. Unfortunately, we've lost this sense that redemption is a deliverance from out of the valley of the shadow of death. In 107, you know, it talks about those who wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry. Their lives ebbed away. And that's where they meet God, that God delivered them from their distress. Maybe we're always in the desert, or that if we see reality as it really is, that there is only the desert as in the movie The Matrix, you know, that Morpheus talks about the desert of the real, that taken out of the simulated matrix of meaning, that horizon of meaning, what we encounter is a complete deconstruction of that horizon. But isn't it the case then that that's where we encounter deliverance? And of course, deliverance here is an immediate kind of deliverance, that it's in the psalm, pictured as unfailing love that he does. You know, he, he uh, fills the hungry. He, he talks about those in darkness, in chains. And throughout this, there is a pointing to, or at least in the New Testament, a seeming echo 
of the psalm in that the prisoners in change, you know, we can think again and again that Peter in prison, Paul in prison, the disciples imprisoned, and it's precisely there that God comes to them. People sometimes in this psalm are depicted as failing because of their own stupidity, their own foolishness. But even there, that God saves them from their distress. And so in each case, it's the salvific movement itself from out of the abyss. Salvation, deliverance from the desert, deliverance from the dark that he cuts through the bars of iron. Well, what are the bars of iron that hold us in? Apparently, it could be something like James is predicting, the bars that, in fact, reify the voice of the dead. They drew near, it says in the psalm, the gates of death, and then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. That is, in some way, when you encounter the reality of the grave, is it that the depiction of the faith of Abraham, that he was as good as dead, Paul says, Sarah's womb was dead. He faced his own mortality, and that's where he understood or experienced existentially the comforting promise of God that he would have an offspring like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. The picture even of being at sea uh, in ships, they were merchants on mighty waters in the tempest, in the high waves, they cry out. You know, it makes you think of the disciples in the boat with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Maybe it's only when we're at our wit's end or at least when we give up on the capacity to deliver ourselves. Isn't that the trust in the grave? The, the passage in Isaiah 28, Isaiah 8, talks about the covenant with death. Isn't the history of the human race one prolonged covenant with death in which the dead are made to speak and they carry the authority so that culture is a kind of static, unmoved, attachment to the grave so that the tomb becomes the birthplace of civilization. The tomb is the womb, in a sense, in that it offers a kind of final security. It's made absolute, that it is a kind of immortality. Ironically, that's precisely the way that Hegel will depict nothingness and death. But in this psalm, and I think in the, the scripture, the idea is that death is confronted for the reality that it is. It is an undoing of human horizons of meaning. And there is the sense that as long as our horizons of meaning endure, that perhaps they've not been tested by the reality of the desert, the reality of the dungeon, the reality of the darkness. This is, you know, the picture I, I, my daughter recently sent me a letter from a, a guy that is in prison, Mark Colville. He's one of the Kings Bay Plowshare Seven, and he's serving time in prison for his actions in protest of nuclear weapons. You know, they cut a hole in the fence, security fence in the Kings Bay Naval Submarine Base. They went in and 
through blood in the display room. They actually never got to any weapons and singing and praying. And they spray painted slogans on a, was actually a replica of a Tomahawk missile. They never got to the actual missiles. But he, he writes that, you know, it's only that it's in prison that he feels he can understand the country in which he's a part, that the bulk, he mentions, of the New Testament itself was written in either in prison, underground, or from political exile. And he says, on a personal note, no wonder why my own discernment seems to become so much clearer when it is undertaken inside the U.S. empire's hellholes. I guess that's why I always end up coming back. Isn't that sort of the choice that we're faced with? That either you're in exile, you're imprisoned, you're outside the city gates, perhaps, or you're part of the city. There is no returning, though, you know, that was my talk last week, that imagining that there is a culture that we can go back to is like imagining, you know, the Jews imagined they could go back to Egypt, or Abraham was always tempted to return. To be well-adjusted, we sometimes, in Christendom, equated with being Christian, as if a well-adjusted American and a well-adjusted Christian are the same thing. And of course, the point is that if we're not in prison or if we're not in exile from a comfortable institutional cultural Christianity, there may be a question of whether we're experiencing the reality of this thing. That is, that the abyss is the place that we meet Christ, and it's only in that kind of desperation that we come to the reality of who Christ is. That, you know, in Friedrich Nietzsche's description, God is dead and our world has been unchained from its son. That one world is undone, I think that's right. I think he was a true prophet. But that is kind of what the psalm is describing. That it's precisely when a world is undone when a god has died that people encounter the reality of a god who delivers. And as long as we find comfort and meaning in a false structure, as long as we trust in death, literally, metaphorically, trust in the cultural horizons of meaning by which we're surrounded, there is the sense that we will be deluded and cannot recognize the truth that's presented to us. And so we know historically that most people in most places created systems of false belief. You can just look back, Julian Jaynes is correct. Why they did this? You know, was it because of the development of the human brain? Whether we agree with that, we can certainly say that there is a evolving subjectivity that comes about and a devolving subjectivity. That there are places that created systems of false belief and false religion that would have failed them only when they reached a desperate point. They faced the reality of death. This, of course, takes us in a sense beyond Lacanian theory or uh, Zizekian theory in the for Lacan and Zizek, there is no undoing of the covenant with death. There is the reification of language, the tripartite self, you know, the symbolic order speaks. And 
it is only in that speaking that you arrive at the subject. You're always in a kind of lie in the anatomy of a lie is symbolic order connected to the ego, connected to the real, this tripartite structure. But of course, I think what is described in the New Testament is that there is a savior, a rescuer, a deliverer, and that that's how we know who Christ is, only as deliverer, only as physician, only as the one who encounters death, confronts death, and is raised from the dead. And so in this, I think we get a clear picture of how death and language get reified together, and that that is an order that is still in place that kills Christ, and that that's the order that he's defeating. Where we've built a city, a world of meaning, that it is going to be a kind of false order that would wall Christ out. And so the only way to encounter the salvation of his deliverance is that world be undone. It's only in the desert of the real, you know, in the language of Morpheus, that we get a picture of the matrix, the falsehood, the simulated reality that is the matrix of human culture. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.